the Gerontological Society of America, meaningful lives as we age. Welcome to this GSA Momentum Discussion podcast addressing physical activity for older adults. Momentum discussions highlight topics experiencing great momentum in the field of gerontology. We're grateful to Nova Nordisk for their support of the GSA Care Toolkit for the Management of Obesity in Older Adults and today's podcast. My name is Jen Pettis and I'm the Director of Strategic Alliances at the Gerontological Society of America. And I'm delighted to serve as the host for today's Momentum discussion. Joining me for this podcast are Eric Levitan, founder and CEO of Vivo, a fitness program for older adults that is built on science, taught by expert trainers and enjoyed in a live online, interactive, and fun group setting. And I'm joined by our member and friend, Dr. Catherine or Katie Porterstar, a registered dietitian and an associate professor at Duke University School of Medicine and research health scientist at the Durham VA Medical Center. Katie also serves as a scientific advisor to the Vivo team. Katie and Eric, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to discuss this important topic. Thank you, Jen, for having us. And again, GSA, for allowing us to be here and talk about our passions, which is helping older adults live their best life. Wonderful. Let's go ahead and get started. Katie, to get us started, can you share a bit about why it's so important that older adults engage in regular physical activity? Yes, absolutely. And again, I really need about five hours to cover this topic. There are a number of reasons why physical activity is so important for everybody, regardless of age. But specifically for our older adults. So I want to take a step back and first state that one of the reasons that physical activity is so important is because as we get older, we have an increased risk of developing chronic health conditions such that 80% of adults 65 and older have one or more chronic health conditions. And so when we think about how we can prevent chronic health conditions, physical activity is one of The number one ways we can do that, participating in both aerobic and strength training exercises can really help reduce your risk of developing chronic health conditions, including obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. Additionally, physical activity can help reduce your risk of developing dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And evidence shows that that reduction of risk can be up to 45%. I think as we think about aging and how we want to live our best lives, physical activity is one of those tools in our tool belt that we can do to really help improve our lives and also help reduce the risk of our developing of diseases. Furthermore, I want to state that it's not just the reduction in risk. So say we have a chronic health condition. Well, guess what? Physical activity can also help reduce the progression of that chronic health condition. So we know that it slows down the progression of chronic health conditions, and also can help improve our overall health. And so it's not that if you have a health condition, oh, well, physical activity is not going to help. That's absolutely not the case at all. And I also want to mention the fact that when we think about aging, I think one of the common things that come up is independence and want to maintain maintain our independence. And so physical activity is extremely important for us to be able to develop, for us to be able to maintain our independence as we get older particularly when we think about strength training. So strength training really does help reduce that risk of developing sarcopenia, sarcopenia being the age-related loss of muscle strength, muscle function, and muscle mass. So really when we think about physical activity, uh, it's important for us to think about it from this perspective of not only does it help us improve our overall health, quality of life, 
but also it's going to help us maintain that independence as we get older. So Eric, Katie told us why it's so important that older adults exercise. What are the recommended weekly physical activity guidelines or recommendations that, that the older adult receives or participates in for exercise, physical activity? So the CDC has done a wonderful job really articulating what those guidelines should be. And for adults 65 and older, it's really recommended to do at least 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity activity, such as walking, gardening, something hiking, something that might really increase the heart rate in a moderate level. Or the other alternative is 75 minutes a week of vigorous intensity, thinking, jogging, running, swimming, et cetera. But it's not just about cardiovascular and aerobic conditioning. It's also about strength training. And, and Katie began to mention the importance of this. They also recommend at least two days a week of activities that strengthen muscles. And in addition to that, also focusing on activities that improve balance, thinking about things like standing on one foot, walking one foot in front of the other, and really practicing those, those sorts of activities. So, Katie, with the activity recommendations that Eric just mentioned, what are some of the things that are that kind of stand in the way of older adults being able to meet those or routinely meeting those guidelines? Yeah, so... Interestingly, you know, we know how good physical activity is for us. Unfortunately, most older adults are not meeting those recommendations that Eric just mentioned. And there's a number of reasons why. I mean, there's been a lot of research that has looked at, you know, what are the barriers to actually meeting these physical activity guidelines? And I think that they can be broken down into kind of three categories, more personal environmental, and really organizational factors. And when we think about those personal factors, I think one of the number one reasons that many people mention that they just don't want to participate is because of pain. A lot of people have joint pain, have knee pain, have injuries. Again, as we get older, we know that we see an increased risk in arthritis and joint and musculoskeletal pain. What is interesting to know, though, is that actually physical activity has been shown to reduce pain. And so it is important for us to be able to educate individuals that if you have pain, working with healthcare providers, physical therapists are really beneficial ways so that we can reduce that. A couple of other reasons from a personal standpoint is a risk of injury. Obviously, if we're not educated on how exactly to do an exercise properly or we have injured something in the past, we've injured um, one of our muscles in the past, there is that fear of injuring that again, or even having that fear of falling. Another one of those reasons why. And I think from an environmental factor, we have to make sure that we're thinking about our social determinants of health. Another reason why people are not physically active is unsafe neighborhoods. There's not walkability, uneven uh, sidewalks, a lot of hills or stairs, poor weather, right? When we think about individuals who you know, really do experience a lot of snow, a lot of ice, uh, we know that there is a reduction in physical activity during those months because of that risk or fear of falling. Um, so again, kind of thinking about those physical environments and then not even having gyms or access to physical activity is another reason. And then I want to hit on the organizational factors because I think these are really important as we think about individuals who look like us when we are exercising. We want to exercise with people who are, who are our similar age. And a lot of times when you go into a gym, we're not typically seeing individuals who are 65 and older. Uh, we're seeing a bunch of 20 year 
happens usually um, in those settings. And so again, kind of thinking from a structure and organizational factors, you know, what are, there's not a lot of resources out there specifically for necessarily for older adults. There are some, do not get me wrong. But again, educating individuals to what those are and where those are at is really important because again, I think these are all the barriers and there's definitely more barriers that we, we encounter. But kind of thinking about from that personal, from that environmental, from that organizational, you know, how do we start tearing down those barriers and finding some facilitators to help in, improve physical activity is extremely important as we're thinking about our older adult population. And so, Katie, thinking about the barriers for older adults, how about if we then layer on the chronic disease of obesity? Are there additional barriers that older adults who live with obesity or overweight face when they are seeking to incorporate physical activity into their lives? Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, research has been done looking at some of the barriers to starting an exercise program with having the chronic health condition of obesity. And one of them is just shame. I don't really feel comfortable doing these exercises in front of other individuals or this understanding of, I don't even know where to start so that I don't injure myself. And I think we have to start tearing down these barriers as well and really making us, and or even having a place that works for me. You know, again, if we are dealing with obesity, a lot of times our gyms are not set up for individuals with obesity. And that already, that is definitely a key barrier uh, that we have where you're like, I'm walking into a place where I already don't feel comfortable and now I'm going to have to exercise and I'm just really worried about what other people are thinking or perceiving of me. And again, having a safe place and safe space is really something that we have to be thinking about when we're dealing with older adults with obesity. So next, I'd like to hear from both of you because I think you have really unique perspectives from your day-to-day -day work. So let's look at a lot of barriers. What are some strategies to overcome those? And Eric, let's start with you. Well, this is really at the heart of, of why we created Vivo is to remove some of those barriers. You know, Katie was articulated very well that there's kind of this multidimensional aspect that we are up against. But thinking about those individually and, and really starting to strip those down to figure out how can we present something that doesn't create that sense of fear, that, that doesn't create that sense of shame or embarrassment. And that guides an older adult who may or may not be as experienced with exercise. How do we do that? And one of the things that we've really tried to do with Vivo is keep this individualized, knowing that everyone has something different going on. And, and it's not even necessarily from person to person. Often it's from day to day, right? On Monday, we may wake up, we feel fine. On Thursday, we wake up, our knee hurts or our shoulder hurts or our neck hurts. And so giving someone the ability to, A, communicate what's going on with them on that specific day, but also giving the feedback mechanism back to them to be able to accommodate for that creates a trusted relationship and an environment where an older adult will feel safe and the ability to engage in that your activity. And so what we do at Vivo in particular is we really provide this small group experience that allows for individualized attention to everybody. So we can keep people safe. We can modify an exercise if they're experiencing pain or discomfort that day. We can make sure that they are doing it with the correct form. We can look at their space and make sure that we're calling out things that may be providing hazards for them. So really providing this individualized mechanism. The other is meeting people where they are, not just in terms of metaphorically, but, but physically. 
And so, you know, we all come up with these excuses that prevent us from doing things that we know we should do. And one of those is I don't have time. I don't want to deal with traffic. I don't want to deal with weather. I don't want to deal with transportation. Joining an online program that is live and interactive, it's not a video that you can push off till later, it's an appointment in your calendar, it creates that motivation and removes some of those excuses, essentially, of why people don't do this. So we really lean into this concept of individualization, meeting people where they are, and then the last component that I think is really, really important is providing a social network that creates some sense of accountability and community that really drives behavioral change. And that's the other aspect of what we really lean into from a Vivo perspective is these live and interactive small groups, they're really great for individualized attention, but they're also really conducive for creating a social experience. In a group of 50, 60, 70 people, it's hard to create that kind of social environment, right? There's just too many people. In a one-on-one environment, or if you're watching a video by yourself, there really isn't a lot of social engagement or any. In a small group of eight people or less, it's quite simple, and we're very intentional about doing this in Vivo classes, where we'll prompt questions, we'll ask people questions while they're exercising, which stimulates conversation. It's also really good for brain health, but um, it's this wonderful mechanism to create a sense of community in this class, which again, a small group really affords you. Eric, I just want to ask you a a little bit of a follow-up. I know that Vivo does some assessments to show progress. How does that, I mean, if you're, I would think that if the older adult sees they're making some progress, that's certainly a motivator for sticking to it as well. Yeah, that's a wonderful question because there's actually two levels of motivation that we think about when we're talking about creating engagement with really any member, but specifically an older adult. The first is creating an environment where it's trusted, where it's safe, where you're getting individualized attention, what we were just talking about. That helps kind of open the door for trying a program like Vivo. But then as we think about how do you get someone to keep coming back to make this behavioral change, we certainly think about community and accountability as one of those mechanisms. But the other is showing progress. It's a wonderful motivator to not only be doing an activity that you're enjoying and you feel better afterwards, which unfortunately exercise has that benefit, but when you really get to see data and see that I started here and now I'm here, it's this wonderful motivator that keeps you coming back and seeing that not only do I feel better, I can see on paper that I'm doing better. And we see this consistently where we do these baseline assessments. We figure, we we establish where people are from a strength, endurance, and balance perspective. And then we reassess every two to three months and we produce these reports. And it's not rocket science, Jen. It's amazing to see Literally 100% of everyone we've ever baseline assessed and reassessed two to three months later has gotten stronger. 100%. It is just the way the human body works. And so if we get able to consistently engage in a program to a level of challenge like Vivo, we will see improvements. And getting those improvements, to your point, is a wonderful motivator continue to have you wanting to come back. And it becomes this self-reinforcing mechanism. Wonderful. That's great. Um, Katie, with your perspective as a clinician at the VA, how about some insight from you with some strategies? Yeah, no, thank you. I think from a clinician standpoint, one of the things that actually have two points. One of the the key things that I have found to be successful is really trying to, and Eric said this very well, meet the individual where they're at. Oftentimes we hear recommendations for, or clinicians will say, hey, 
you really need to exercise and you need to change your diet. And yes, I think that we can do both of those things. However, without guidance and clear instructions or resources, you know, that really does sit on deaf ears because what do you do with that? And so one of the things as a clinician I really like to do is first identify what is my patient's goal? What is it that they're wanting? Where are they at in this process? Are they ready to make some changes? And what, you know, really, what, what is it that they're wanting? And how can I tie that goal with exercise and, and diet, diet and exercise together? Is there ways that we can even just start planting some seeds here or even just start talking and having the conversation? Because again, that is part of this is not everybody's just ready to make these changes. And so we have to continuously have these conversations, I think, as clinicians to really help build some, some trust, some structure, some, some movement in some behavior change. And I think the other important takeaway that I, I have learned <laughs> over the years with age, it, it has helped me understand that we have to make sure it's very clear that our patients know that they don't necessarily have to start out by hitting that 150 minutes of moderate physical activity or 75 minutes of vigorous activity or two days a week of strength training. Because I do think sometimes patients think that they have to go from zero to 100 and that is a great way for failure to happen. And so again, even starting, and our, our research shows this, evidence shows this, that small steps really do show progress. And I think as Eric said, showing progress and seeing progress builds more progress and ways in which we can do that so that people aren't going from not exercising at all to trying to do 150 minutes of modern physical activity and they are in pain and they do hurt and it makes them not want to do it anymore. So again, I think it's meeting patients where they're at, understanding where they are and what they're willing to do, and then also starting to build some framework on how do we do some baby steps to get to that so that we can maintain that success and that behavior change. So those are kind of the two things that I think I've really learned as a practicing clinician working with our older adults. Eric, when you talked about the recommended weekly physical activity, you talked about the aerobic activity, but also talked about strengthening muscles and improving balance. Why are these things so important for older adults? Well, as Katie kind of alluded to earlier in, in talking about why exercise was so important, we are all losing muscle mass as we age. This is a natural part of the aging process. And unfortunately, it really serves as that gatekeeper for so much of what determines our quality of life as, as we're older. And it turns out there's this amazing principle that we've known about for a very long time where you can challenge your muscles on a regular basis and actually develop strength and develop function. And so we really try to encourage people to, A, create that awareness that this is possible. It's not too late. That's another interesting thing we haven't really touched upon yet. For a lot of older adults and especially older adults with chronic conditions that they're managing, there's this sense that it's too late. This is something for people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It's not for me. And that could not be further from the truth. It is, it is truly never too late. There were some landmark studies in the 80s where they took individuals in their 90s who lived in nursing homes who had never exercised and saw incredible outcomes by individuals who engaged in strength training three times a week. And so I think it's really important to help communicate to people that it's not too late. And then focusing on this process of challenging your muscles on a regular basis begins to really have this dramatic effect on our health and wellness and independence. It turns out that building our strength is really good for balance. It turns out that it helps promote sleep. 
It turns out that it lowers blood pressure and lowers cholesterol and improves mood and helps with anxiety and depression. And it's got all of these really amazing, very tangible health benefits that I think we don't talk enough about. We've got all these technological advances and we really focus on a number of steps and the Apple Watches and Fitbits of, of the world that have kind of taken over and really got us focused on the importance of walking, which is one of the most important things that we can do as much as humanly possible. But I think in some ways it's gotten us so laser focused on the number of steps that we've stopped paying attention to these other things. And building strength is equally as important because it does provide all of these ancillary benefits beyond just being able to do activities of daily living. Think about standing up from a chair. That is something that we do 100 times a day, if not more. When we lose our ability to stand up from a chair, we lose our independence. Standing up from a chair is a strength activity where you're using our core, our lower body strength, and our balance to rise up from that chair, it's really important to focus on these activities of daily living that help maintain our quality of life, that help maintain our independence, and that's all about strength training. Katie, one of the things that we've talked a bit about is the the likelihood that an older adult may have one or more chronic health condition. They may live with a disability, perhaps that limits them from engaging in, in some of the types of exercises we have discussed. So how can they safely engage in activity? How, what are some options there? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, making sure that they have clearance from their PCP is, is key, right? With any health condition, we do want to make sure that we are talking to our healthcare providers and keeping them abreast of what we're doing. And then I will also say that working with a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, if we're in pain or recently injured is going to be really key. So kind of just across the board, making sure that we are working with providers that specialize in musculoskeletal conditions is going to be key, especially if you have a recent injury or an impairment that is really causing pain or, you know, we're seeing it flare up again. For individuals who have a, a, a potentially have a disability or have been living with a chronic health condition, one of the important things that we have to make sure we understand is that exercise cannot be a cookie cutter program. It can't, it, we are all different. We all have different movement patterns and potentially have health conditions, potentially have an injury that we have had for a long period of time. So Making sure that when we start an exercise program, that the exercise program is individualized, is going to be key, and that there are modifications that are able to be made so that we don't re-injure ourselves. That is extremely important, especially as we think about our older adults. Or if something is causing pain, to be able to actually feel comfortable enough to say, that is causing pain, do we have another movement pattern that I can use that can help reduce that? Or is there something else where I can work that same muscle group? without maybe doing you know, this movement. Being able to have the expertise or an exercise program that has that expertise, I think it's very, very important for older adults. Because again, we are going to be at more risk for injuring ourselves again if we are just trying to do a cookie cutter program that doesn't have modifications or doesn't have different levels of intensity to really meet us where we're at and what we need. So really thinking about that challenge as Eric was talking about, we do have to challenge the muscles for us to actually break down the muscle, rebuild the muscle so it becomes stronger. But we need to be able to do that in a safe setting that really fits and meets me where I'm at and you where you're at. That individualization is going to be really, really key. So you mentioned 
some those modifications. And Eric, I want to talk with you about the modifications because I, I'd love for you to really give an example for our listeners about what does that look like? So if I start with a traditional squat or a traditional jumping jacks or whatever it is, how do I modify that and make it suitable for people with, with different abilities? Yeah, I love talking about this because this really gets to the heart of what I think so many older adults are afraid of is that I can't do that. And my favorite thing to do in a presentation in, in a room full of people is, especially older adults, is say, raise your hand if you can do a push-up. And you'll often see, you know, a smattering of hands, but but not very many. And the answer is actually everyone in this room can do a push-up, just not the version of a push-up that you're imagining in your mind. And I think when we all envision a push-up, we think of the traditional on the ground, on your hands and toes, lowering your chest to the floor and pushing, you know, extending away. And that is one form of a push-up, but that can be modified depending on your level of mobility and level of function and strength and fitness. And so that's the traditional way we think about it. But some people can't actually, they don't have the upper body strength to do that. So you can modify a push-up and instead of being on your toes, you can be on your knees. And that is a slightly less rigorous way of doing a push-up. And then there's some people that can't even get to the floor or don't feel comfortable getting to the floor. And so you can also do a push-up by leaning against the countertop and extending your arms away from the countertop so that your body's at an angle. And some people may not feel comfortable with that, but you can also stand against a wall and you can walk your feet back a step, two steps, three steps. The further your feet get pushed back from the wall, the more challenge you create. And then you can literally do a push-up standing next to a wall, which almost everybody can do. And it's a, it's a very safe, comfortable experience that we really want to help the older adults that we work with find of all of those different variations of a push-up, what's comfortable for you? Where do you feel safest? And start to challenge them to progress through this variation. So starting with a push-up standing next to a wall, maybe slowly walking your feet back a little bit further as you get more comfortable, maybe transitioning to push-ups off of the top of a counter or the back of a chair, and ultimately working down so that we get more and more challenging variations. But hopefully that's a good example of how you can take an existing exercise like a push-up and really create a lot of variation to match the functional ability of any one person. And so who might be able to help an older adult make those kind of modifications? So there's probably a handful of different types of, of roles that, that you can think of. Certainly, physical therapists are, are wonderful at doing this. And, and as Katie mentioned, dealing with an acute injury or coming off of surgery, PT is always kind of a recommended first step and, and going through some rehabilitative process that can really work with an individual for where they're at. But once you get out of PT, it's often this kind of you know, very ambiguous, you know, what do I do next? And I think the things to look for really are certified personal trainers and certified personal trainers specifically who understand corrective exercise and understand working with older adults and the nuances that come with aging. And so that is very much a part of what we do in vivo as an example is we look for those individuals who have that experience and that expertise to be able to know how to modify. And then obviously we train them on our program. And what we've built out is this modification protocol for every single exercise that we do. So certified personal trainers and individuals who really have that experience with corrective exercise and older adults are really where I would go beyond PT. Well, we're just about to wrap up, but I want to reflect on just a couple of things that I heard. One was I heard loud and clear meeting folks where they are, that there's really 
There's never the wrong time to get started. It's never too late to get started with the exercise. But I also really love that message of it's just, it's not all about counting the steps. We need the strength training and the balance training and why those things are so important for all of us as we age. Before we wrap up, I'd love to give you guys each one last word. So just a a quick thought of one thing you want to leave listeners with. Katie, why don't you start? So my last words that I would like to leave everyone with is really making sure that we just get started. Just start where you're at and really making sure that we identify programs that can meet us where we are at and really are individualized for our needs. As a clinician, the key point that I would like to leave is as we are working with patients, particularly our patients with obesity, is making sure that we are listening to their needs, we are listening to their goals, and that we are providing them with resources to help them meet those goals. Again, even if it is just starting the conversation, having the conversation, but really helping our clients understand that they are being heard and that exercise and diet are really important and that here are some guiding resources that we can give them so that they can start that process and that we can be with them on that journey. And Eric, the last word from you. And I'll, I'll actually piggyback off of what Katie just said. And, and there's a, a, a quote I heard once that said, don't think about it as one day, think about it as day one. And I think that's been a helpful mantra that I've tried to, to repeat to others is we do, we, we tell ourselves one day, we all know exercise is good for us, right? Everyone who's listening to this podcast now knows this, but we, we often do this, right? We say, one day I'm going to do this. And maybe we wait for the new year in January 1st, and we come up with reasons to create those incentives. But I think it's thinking about, make today day one. Don't stop, stop you know, your mind frame of, of one day I'm going to do this and, and make it day one. And as Katie mentioned, don't have to go from zero to 100 immediately. Start doing things that help you move down that path and take it a step at a time. Because we know that exercise is a really potent drug for health and wellness. There is not another intervention on earth that does nearly as much to prolong our lifespan, preserve our cognitive and physical function, but people aren't doing this enough. And thinking about how you can incorporate this into your life becomes a really, really critical thing as we get older and it gets more important. And looking for opportunities to help you make it day one, looking for programs that are out there, whether it's silver sneakers that you may have access to through your Medicare Advantage program or a local YMCA or another boutique fitness company or a program like Vivo that is really specialized in helping older adults to reach their goals and maintain that health and independence. So don't make it one day, make it day one. All right, great. Well, thank you both for taking time out of your your schedules. I know you're so busy and Katie, as always, we thank you for your ongoing contribution and leadership in GSA's obesity work. We, we're so grateful for both your contributions, for sure. I appreciate it, Jen. Thanks. Thank you to everyone who's listened to our podcast. We hope you found it informative and enjoyable. And thank you both, Katie and Eric. Thank you. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org, G-E-R-O-N.org.